Good morning, everyone. Good to see all of you here this morning. Listen, if you are visiting this morning, we want you to know that you are a welcome guest, and we're very happy that you have chosen to come our way. Listen, if you hear anything or have seen anything or just experienced anything that you have questions about about the church here that meets at Linder Road, then certainly feel free to talk to me about it after services, or uh, you might catch up with one of the elders out on the, the, in the foyer. There's a, a pictures of all the different shepherds that serve this congregation here. You can talk to almost any one of those, but certainly feel free to uh, talk to us about those things. Anyway, you're, uh, we're happy that you're here with us. For those of you who are online, we're glad that you're with us. For those of you who are back in the remote service, we're glad that you are with us as well. Very quickly, just let me remind you that tonight there will be no discussion about the chosen, but Wednesday evening, we're going to have a singing this evening, but next Wednesday evening, we're going to be looking at episode eight of The Chosen, and it's a great episode, so you want to be able to see that so we can discuss it on the next uh, Sunday uh, evening. So in our ongoing series on returning to our roots, the reason for returning to our roots is because I think it's really foundational to who we are as Christians. It helps us to see where we have been, where we are, go, where we are now, and of course where we are going. The other aspect of having a good foundation to the roots is the health. And like the foundation of a tree has to do with the health of that tree, so does the foundation of our spiritual roots have to do with our health. And so there are times when we have to return back to our roots in order that we might do, if you will, a, a health checkup to see how we are doing. Uh, for instance, um, annually, I usually have to go to a doctor. I'll see my, my GP, and, and he or she will, uh, will do a test. It's an annual, do a wellness check or a health check. And, and they do things like they'll take some blood out of my arm, you know, some blood, and they'll check my lipids to see how my cholesterol is doing. They'll do my A1C to see how the diabetes is doing. They will uh, do some blood work on my kidneys to see how the gout is doing. They'll do any number of things. They will check my heart. They'll check my lungs. They'll poke here, they'll poke there. And then they, of course, will bend a little bit here and then bend a little bit there, but they give you kind of a health wellness check. Well, 12 years ago, I went to my doctor after, you know, doing the blood test and everything, and I'm sitting there, and he's poked and bent a little bit, and then he said to me, he looked at me in the face, he says, well, Richard, I've got some bad news for you. I thought, oh, man. And he said, you have diabetes. And I went, wow. I mean, I didn't say anything. I just kind of sat there. I had this stunned look on my face, obviously, the kind of the thousand-yard stare. And he says to me, you're shocked, aren't you? I said, well, yeah. I didn't think I had diabetes. I feel great. I feel like I'm at my plane weight. Things are going good for me. I don't feel sick at all. And he goes, well, you've got diabetes, and you've got to get it under control. And, I mean, and you need to do it quickly. I said, well, okay, well, how do I do that? And he goes, well, listen, he goes, let me just ask you a few questions. He goes, uh, your family, he goes, do you have any overweight people in your family or any people in your family that have diabetes? And I said, yeah, my mom's got diabetes. My sister had diabetes. Were they overweight? I think the word he used was, were they obese? And I said, well, yeah, they're overweight. And he goes, okay, that's probably your problem. Uh, you need to, you know, maybe drop your weight. How much do you weigh anyway? So like a woman, I lied to him. <laughs> and, and I say, well... I weighed 238 pounds. I weighed, I weighed like 241 pounds and some change. I said, well, I weighed 238 pounds. He says, well, how tall are you? See, I know where he's going. He's doing that height to weight or height to weight deal, you know. And I said, well, tall you. I said, well, I'm, I'm six foot five. <laughs> he doesn't think that's funny. You're laughing. He didn't think that's funny. He goes, no, look. He looks at me real strange. He goes, I'm serious about this. How, how tall are you? And so now I felt bad about lying like that. So I took a half inch off of six foot. So I'm, I'm six foot. 
Instead of six and a half foot. I'm six foot. He goes, okay, you got to lose 38 pounds. I said, are you crazy? I said, 38 pounds? I said, I haven't, lived, leave, I haven't weighed 200 pounds since I was 24 years old. I mean, that's way in the background there. I think I was like 58 at the time or 56. I said, that's way. I mean, I haven't been there in a long time. He goes, well, listen, if you want to get out of diabetes, if you want to get out of cholesterol, all that stuff, you need to drop the weight. I said, how do I do that? He says, you eat less and you move more. You got to start exercising more and you got to reduce your calorie intake. How do I do that? He goes, on the back of everything you eat, every Snickers bar, well, you can't eat Snickers bar, everything you eat, <laughs> you know, there is a cow, it tells you how much fat is in it, how much sugar is in it, how many grams of this, grams of that, it's all there. And you need to drop weight and here's the calories that, that you have to intake now. And I thought, that is going to be so hard. I said, so no more Snickers? No. No more glazed, old-fashioned donuts? No. No more cakes? No more pies? No. No more regular Cokes? No. No, no, no. I thought to myself, just kill me now. and We'll be done with this. And he says, we just can't do that stuff. And I, he goes, sugar is your enemy. I said, no more mashed potatoes. He goes, no, you can have mashed potatoes. Not that much. This much. No more spaghetti. No, you can have spaghetti. Not that much. This much. What he was saying to me was this. He said, listen, if you want to get healthy, the old man Richard has to quit eating certain things. You have certain appetites that you have now. you got to get rid of those appetites, and the sugar is going to be your enemy, so you have to start, stop eating the sugar. The old man has got to quit doing it, and the new man has, started, has to start getting his appetites under control. Otherwise, you're going to be unhealthy, and the consequences of the health is you're going to have cardiovascular problems. You're going to end up losing limbs from this. He goes, all kinds of things, and so you need to get this thing under control. And so I did. I, I think I lost like 34 pounds, you know, and, and I kept it off for a while. Now I've gone back up. Now I'm around 226 pounds or something like that. And, and it's just been a huge battle, a big struggle between the old man and the uh, new man. The old man is supposed to put off those bad appetites. The new man is to put on some good habits. And, and it's just been a huge struggle. I kind of bounced back and forth. Even this morning, I said, okay, I got to look thin so I can wear black, you know. <laughs> Thought about even wearing stripes, you know. But anyway, this has been that struggle that is there. Now, some of you probably interested. Now, listen, I didn't come here to hear about your battle between, with your, your diet and things of that nature. And, and the truth is that some of you can't even relate to what I'm saying because you're little skinny things and you just, you know, you don't worry about calories and any, any of that, that stuff. But here's what I do know. I do know that all of us, without exception to a person, all of us struggle with fighting between this old man and this new man. All of us have that struggle that we just go through in life. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about putting off the old man and putting on the new man, the new self, if you will. And so we're going to look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses 17 through 22. And so if you'll open your Bibles to that section of Scripture, there's some incredible things that you read here in this. You say, here's what's going on here. Paul is going to show a stark contrast between the old man, the person who, before they became a Christian, acted this kind of way, and now you put on Christ. You're the new man, and now here's how you're going to act with your life. Because you are different, now you're to act different. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. The word Gentile simply means the unbelievers, those who haven't given themselves over to the Lord, also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. But you did not learn Christ 
this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, put on the new self, which is in likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. So he talks about becoming this new man. Well, why is it important to become a new man? Because when you become a Christian, there is a huge difference between the old self and the new self. And there are clear differences that are seen there. In fact, the Bible is really replete with, with talking about this change. It's saying that if you are a Christian, then the life of the Christian is a changed life. And you can see it over and over again in the scriptures that talk about this. For instance, look at, keep your finger at Ephesians 4. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I want you to notice what Paul is writing to these Romans says to them. Look at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. What happens to a crucified person? They die, right? So he says, the old man was crucified when we were baptized into Christ in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And you go on down through that section of Scripture and it'll talk about the emphasis of how that has changed. But there you see the old man and the new man. He says, when we were baptized into Christ, we resurrected or we came up out of that watery grave and now we are new people. We live a different kind of lifestyle. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature or new creation. The old has passed away. The new has become. And so we are to be new creatures. Or 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Listen to what, uh, what uh, that section of Scripture says here as Paul writes to the Corinthians about their, their lifestyles. 1 Corinthians 6 Verses 9 through 11. It's kind of a, a depressing section of Scripture at the beginning of it. But then it, gets really, then it starts to get really uh, good. Listen to what he says. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. But listen to this. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. What is he saying? He said, listen, that used to be your way of life. That used to be who you are, but no longer. That, that, such were some of you, but you're no longer like that. You are now a new creation. You walk to a different kind of, of tune. And not only that, but when you look at the lives of individuals that are recorded in the scriptures, you read about men like Matthew, who was a tax gatherer. He was the bane of society. People hated tax gatherers. The Romans didn't like him. The Jews didn't like him. They were seen as traitors. They were seen as the lower bar of life. They were the scum of society. They were liars. They were cheats. They were extortionists. They were all kinds of terrible things. And yet you have Matthew, who becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ, and writes the first gospel in your Bible, the gospel of, of Matthew. 
Simon, who was a zealot, he was a man who was trained to execute the Roman army or the uh, Roman soldier. That's what they were about, about pushing off the oppression of the Roman Empire on that of Judea. And so Simon was a zealot who was all about that. And yet he becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ. He sells out to Jesus completely. How about Mary Magdalene? She has all kinds of demons. Because of the demon lifestyle, she has probably fallen into some really dark, terrible places in her life. And yet she becomes a major contributor and supports Jesus in his ministry for three years and becomes a great follower of his and is a great example of what womanhood is about. Or how about this guy, once called Paul, now, Saul now called Paul. He was a violent aggressor against the church. He cast people into prison. He had people executed. This guy was a bad guy. But he experienced the life of Jesus in his life, and he completely does a complete change or makeover in his life to arguably being probably one of the greatest of the apostles, writing 13 books of your New Testament. That tells me that a person, there is this old self that becomes a new self. And these guys took that, or gals took that extremely seriously. Or how about this guy, John Newton? John Newton was a slaver. He was a captain of a slave ship. He hated his life. He was a violent man, an aggressive man, selling human beings into slavery and, and, and delivering them to be slaves. And he hated his life. And he decided to make a change and became an Anglican cleric. And he became a, a, an abolitionist and was really a, a part of getting rid of slavery in England. That's John, John uh, Newton. Listen to what he said of himself. I am not what I might be. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. And I can say with great, the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The old man becomes the new man. So what's the old man and the new man? Well, when you was an old man, when you was a person, a, the Gentile, then you ran to sin. Your life was about running to sin. But once you become the new man, your life is about running away from it. And you can't stay in the middle where you're not running away or running to. You, as a Christian, we are constantly, because we are sinners, we're constantly identifying darkness in our lives, and we're striving to put it off, and so we're running away from the sin rather than running to it. So what is the spiritual condition of the old self? Well, that's what I want to share with you because Paul, he, he, you know, he delivers a, or at least shares an extreme contrast between that which is a believer and an, an unbeliever. And so he talks about the spirit condition of the old man. And what he says about them, he says, the spiritual condition of the old man, he says, do not walk as the Gentiles walk. If you were to go back to Ephesians 4 and verse 1 and look at that section, Paul says, I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, that you walk differently, you walk as wise men. And then here in verses 17 and 18, he says, these people that are unbelievers are walking as the Gentiles. Their minds run after sin is what he says. He says they walk in the futility of their minds. That word vanity or futility really is, could be accurately translated the emptiness. That which is wasted on nothing. That which you think has value to it, that you think that you're going to get something good from it, that which you think is going to bring satisfaction and contentment, 
may not be that at all. There's an emptiness that is there, and you can tell that by looking at people's lives. You can look at what people see as, as pressure, what they're passionate about. You can listen to what they talk about, what they are infatuated with. You can find out what is meaningful in their lives. But oftentimes, it becomes a superficial kind of thing. I'm going to show you a couple of extremes here. This one here is a gal by the name of Valeria Lukayanova. You say, who is this gal here? This is a real person. This is not a, a doll up behind me, okay? This is not a, a Barbie doll. And yet she's a 29-year-old uh, model from the Ukraine, and she's styling her life. She's taken the last five years, and she is sculpting her life, sculpting her body and her face so she looks like a living Barbie. She doesn't like to tag a living Barbie, but that's what she says her aim is. And so she has trained herself with her eyes never to blink. Because Barbie never blinks. So she comes and has her eyes wide, wide open. She's got rid of any wrinkles across here. She's got rid of any wrinkles across here. Why? Because Barbie doesn't have that stuff. And so she spent five years of her life crafting her body so she can live like this animated, this inanimate object or doll itself. Longer neck, longer legs, thinner legs, tighter waist. You know, all those things. Here's another gal. This lady's name is Rachel Evans. She's a 50-year-old woman. Lives in Britain. This is what she looks like today. She owns the living Barbie thing. I am a living Barbie. If you were to I watch an interview, she's in her house. She's showing you through the house. And her house is all pink and different kinds of pinks, different shades of pink with what she says, and some purple, which Barbie says purb. You don't say purple. Barbie really says purb. And then she talks about what she has done, 50 years old. And so if you were to look at a close picture of Rachel Evans back then and now, you can't even identify the same. She says, well, she spent over $70,000 on surgery. She says there's not been an inch of her face that has not been corrected. Not an inch of her face that has not been surgically corrected. And she's still not happy because she says, listen here, I've got these things right here. And Barbie doesn't have those things. And so I'm having this taken out. I'm going to have this fixed here. My brow never moves here. I've had it frozen. So it stays just like this. That's just what she's done from her face up from what she's done down is a bunch of stuff as, as well. $70,000. And she says, I'm going to reverse age because as I get older, there's always already a surgery process that's going to change and turn that all around. I've got news for Valeria and Rachel. There is no stopping that age stuff. You can get shots, you can do a lot of surgery, you can do a lot of stuff, but eventually you become old. And eventually you can't keep up, you can't stay the Barbie, and yet somehow they said, Barbie is my happy place. Barbie is where I want to be. And if you think only women do this kind of thing, here's a guy by the name of Jack Vidgen. He is the living Ken doll. Seriously, he's a, I can't even tell you how many surgeries this guy has had on his face so that he can look like Ken. So that is so superficial. It's, it's extreme, okay? It's an extreme kind of, of thing, but it's easy to get caught up in this stuff. Now, are they sending? I don't know. 
you know. Here's what I do know is I know that we can get caught up in the old life. See, with the Ephesians, they were going back into their old life that was like how they lived when they were citizens of Ephesus. Ephesus was a violent, a crude, a, they promoted sexuality as something that is the norm of life. They lied, they cheated, they murdered, they did all kinds of terrible things. And Paul is saying, you Ephesians are starting to go back to that old man. You need to put off the old man and put on the new man and renew yourself. So people get caught up in a lot of things. The lost person is so caught up in his or her own appetites that they can't, they can't seem to uh, how enslaved they really are. In fact, they may not even know what the sin is or that the sin is a sin because their minds have become so darkened. Look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, almost a parallel section of Ephesians 4. But in Colossians chapter 3, he, he's a little bit more definitive about what he is driving at. But look at verse 5 of Colossians 3. Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you once walked when you were living in them, but not any longer, is what he's saying to them. There is a new self that is to uh, come into a play here. There's a fellow by the name of Thomas, Thomas Constance. Thomas Constance, he wrote a book called The Three Edwards. And then it's, it's, I think it goes from like 1272 A.D. to 1377 A.D., about a hundred-year period. And he talks about the three Edwards who were kings, okay, in England. And in one section of it, it talks about uh, a duke in the 14th century by the name of Reynold III. Reynold was Edward's older brother, and those two got into it with one another. And because he got into it, had this strong quarrel, Edward decides to lead a revolt against Reynold. Reynold has a nickname. His nickname is Crassus, which means fat. This guy is, I mean, this is no exaggeration. He is a fat man. He likes to eat. I mean, he likes to eat a lot. A lot of, I mean, he likes to eat a lot. So he is huge. And so he gets into it with his brother. His brother leads a revolt. He takes Reynold as a prisoner. He takes him back to the castle, Wiersbeek, and he has him uh, put into a room that, well, he builds a room around Reynold. He builds a room around him. He imprisons him. The interesting thing about this room is, is it has normal windows and it has a normal door and there are no locks. There's no bolts. Reynold is free to leave whenever he wills it to leave. But Edward knows something about Reynold. He knows he's got an appetite for food. He likes to eat a lot. And so he makes sure that he has scrumptious, delicious meals delivered to him every day. And Reynold eats them every day. And his critics said to Edward, you're being cruel to your brother. He says, I'm not cruel to my brother. My brother can have back his title and his property whenever he wills it to do so. Whenever he wants to do it, he can do it. So 10 years of his life, he stays in this little room that he has. Until 10 years later, Edward gets in a battle and is killed. 
And now Reynold is set free, except for the problem is, is they got to make it, the door's now big enough for him to get out, but now it's been 10 years, and his life, physically speaking, has been ruined, and after being set free, he dies one year later. He died a prisoner of his own appetite. I mean, all he had to do was drop weight. Richard, if you don't want to be a diabetic, don't want to be a, drop the weight, dude. The door's wide open for you. you uh, you're the master of this thing here. What do you want to do? Same thing with Raynaud. And we look at that and we think, well, how can a person be so, have so little self-control over their appetites? Well, many people are like Raynaud. They're enslaved to them, themselves to their own spiritual or uh, sinful appetites. That they won't walk away from it. They just stay muddled up in the thing. So it says their minds run to things that are futile or empty. And he says, and their heart is calloused towards sin. The word callous there is an interesting word. If you look at Ephesians 4, verses 18 and following, listen to what he says here because I think it kind of, well, I, obviously it puts it in context for you. But listen to what it says. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded in life from God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts, they have become calloused, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. I think some of your translation says they are blind. Actually, the word is better translated, they're hardened, or they are callous. The word callous means the hardening of the skin so that it is not sensitive to touch. For instance, on my hands here, if you were to get a close-up, you'd see that I have a, a callus here, and I have a callus here, and that's from golfing, and I got blisters there because I hold the golf club too tight. Anyway, I get blisters there, and then they hardened up, and now they got calluses on them, and now they don't feel. Some of you might have it on your feet or on your big toe, but it gets calloused uh, over. Well, the old man becomes insensitive to sin. And Paul says, because of the callousness of their hearts, they are past feeling, is what he says. They're past feeling. And because they're past feeling, it says, they lead a life of lasciviousness. Now, there's a word that you never hear except in a church building. I mean, when was the last time, Jake, you heard that word lasciviousness? Man, that, did you see that person? He's acting lascivious over there. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word lascivious, I mean, it sounds like a bad word, but it talks about those who are unbridled, without any restraint. Think of a horse without a bridle, does whatever he's wanting. He said, well, this person here, an unbeliever that is involved in its own self, is unbridled. They live lives that are unchecked without any kind of moral restraint whatsoever. They're insolent. They get up in your face. They tell you off. They let you know what you ought to be and what you not ought to, or what you ought not to be. They are outrageous. They live a life that is just out there for all to see. No matter how sinful or immoral that might be, they are outrageous. They're shameless. They feel nothing about the, about what they are doing. The things that God says is that God says is a sin. They don't care. In fact, their mindset says, "I will do what I want." when I want, with whom I want, and I don't care what anyone else has to say about it or what they think about it. I don't care. I'll do as I please. A number of years ago, a guy by the name of Kurt Logan who worked for MTV, he did an interview with the Hollywood set, and he was talking to them about the seven uh, deadly sins of the Bible. Though you can see him off to, the, to your left there. 
But the 70 Statements of the Bible, he called it the theology of, of sin. And so what he did was he interviewed actresses and entertainers of different, and just see how they viewed uh, the seven deadly sins, pride and greed and lust and envy and sloth and wrath and, and gluttony. Um, actress Kirstie Alice, she says, I don't think pride is a sin. I think some idiot just made that up. Queen Latifah said, pride? I didn't know sin was, pride was a sin. Errol Smith, uh, that had to be Tyler, uh, Stephen Tyler said, lust is what we live for. It's what I got in the band for. Michael Douglas, greed's good. Greed is, is good. Well, uh, like I said, Kurt Loder, he asserted that we are dealing with compulsions. The seven deadly sins are not evil acts, but rather universal human compulsions that can be troubling and highly enjoyable. And I thought, no, Kurt, they're deadly. They're deadly. They'll kill your spirit. They'll destroy your soul. And not only in this life, but even in the life to come, and so they finally summed it up by saying, according to MTV, sin is not based on an absolute moral standard. It's a matter of personal preference, individual taste. Everything is relative. Today's tolerant culture says, what sin for you may not be sin to me. But God has his list. God has determined, and if you look at Galatians, the fifth chapter, verses 19 through 21, you'll see a pretty thorough list, and not complete list, but a pretty thorough list about the old man and the old self living in the flesh, as opposed to the new man who lives according to the Spirit and is filled with the Spirit, Galatians 5 and verse 22 down through verse 24. So what Hollywood, and I'm not saying all Hollywood's like this, okay, or all entertainers are, are like this. I'm simply saying that a lot of them have decided to stay in the cage of their own sin and enslaved there because they're prisoners of their appetites. And how easy that is for us to fall into it. You say, well, that's them. Couldn't happen to us. Who do you think Paul was writing to? He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's not writing to Hollywood. He's not writing to, he is writing to Christians, warning them, here is the old man, bad news, here's the new man, that's the good news. So a born-again child of God is to be different. We are to put on the old self and put on the, put off the old self and put on the new self. We're not to be running to sin, we're to be running from sin. There's an old preacher who said this, I thought it was pretty good, he goes, Look at your life before you were saved. And if you is what you was, you ain't. <laughs> so what is Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, if you are saved, then you need to act like it. You need to act like it. And so he talks about the next part, and that is the spiritual actions of the new self. The new self has a changed mind that results in a changed heart, that res results in a changed desire to act differently. That's what that's really all about. Look at verse 20. Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way. What he's saying is, you know the truth. You didn't learn a false narrative. You learned the truth about it. And, and so you need to go to where the truth is. So the new self takes their clues from God's word or from God's truth. It's the truth that will set you free, in other words. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, you know, um, Mike's been talking about this on Sunday morning. By the way, he's teaching a great class. He hasn't been gone to Yachty because it's a good, really a good class. 
But 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for reteaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in what? Righteousness. We're taught what is good and what is bad, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. And so it's the word of God that changes our minds. Paul said in Romans 12 and verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to the old man, but be renewed in your mind. So do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what is the acceptable and good will of God. And so we change our mind through the truth itself. So for God's word, we've been taught what is fleshly, and we've been taught what is spiritual, and Paul is encouraging us to go towards that. The new self must be determined to, to uh, live differently from the world. So what does that mean? It means we think different, we act and walk different, we talk different, we look different. There should, there should be a distinctiveness about who we are as the wholesome, righteous people of God or children of, of God. Really, we, we really should. So the new self uh, must determine to be different from the world, and that's what Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 22. Put off the old man, he says. That word to put off, the original language means to strip it away. To strip it away. You see the picture of the guy stripping off the old cloth? He's stripping off the old man, the old self that was corrupted and being destroyed by sinful uh, conduct uh, caused by deceit. Look at what it says there. In verse uh, 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside, that you put aside, that you strip off the old self, which is being corrupted. The word corrupted means to be destroyed in accordance with the lust of deceit. Okay, so those things will destroy you. So what is deceit? Deceit means to promise you something that it cannot give, that is, is long-lasting and does not describe the consequences of that thing. You're encouraged to do something that you know is wrong, and it promises you that you're going to be satisfied, that it's going to be a great high, that it's going to be the best thing in your life. The problem is that it can't sustain that. It might do it for a moment, but it can't sustain it. And it doesn't tell you the consequences that have to do with guilt and regret. <clears throat> And shame and all those things that go along with it. It's like the guy who is in the mall with his wife and they're shopping, they're walking down, there's a kiosk and they stop and they're looking at this kiosk and the wife is, you know, she's looking at this piece of merchandise and a young woman walks by who's wearing a short dress, super form fitting, she looks striking and the guy, he looks up and he follows her. That's her husband. He looks up and follows her. And his wife, without not taking her eyes off the Item, not even looking up, she says, I hope it was worth what you're in for. I hope it was worth it. Because when we get home, you're going to get it. Well, that's what sin does. Sin promises you something that it cannot do. It just cannot. And so Paul says, you need to strip away the old self. And you need to put on the new self, created to be like God through true righteousness and holiness. So what does putting on the new self look like? When verses 24 down through 34, he tells you what to put on. You're thinking, oh man, we're going to be here forever. No, you're just going to be here for about another five, seven minutes. And then I'll cut you loose. Maybe nine minutes. Anyway, let's look into it, okay? So he says, 
that you may be renewed in the spirit of your mind, verse 23, look at verse 24, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness, holiness, and truth. Verse 25, here's the things we're going to put off, here's the things we're going to put on, okay? Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth to each one as with your neighbor, for we are members of one another. So we are to put off lying, and we are to put on truth-telling. We're to be honest with one another. I started to look up how many times we lie a day. It's staggering. And he says, as new people, we need to put off lying, and we need to be honest with each other. We need to be truthful with each other. Look at verse 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. So he says, put off anger. Why? Because it gives the devil an opportunity. Why? Because anger can be almost equated with even, you know, hating your brother to the point that you'd like to see him dead. Anger is a bad thing. So he says we're to put off anger and we're to put on self-control. Did you notice there's a time limit? There's an alarm clock there. The alarm clock says, do not let the sun go down. On what? On your wrath. You're angry. You want to take an inch of someone's skin from them or hide from them. But he says, but you don't allow that to do it. Now you've been angry. Now you have a time clock. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Get rid of that thing. Be in control. You'll save your relationships. You'll save your marriage. You'll save your friendship. You'll save your jobs. You will save all kinds of things if you can put off anger and put on self-control. Look at verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with him who is in need. So we need to put off theft and put on a strong work ethic. We need to work hard for what we get. We shouldn't be stealing things. I, there's a couple of things that I watch about uh, people who find themselves on the streets, having to live on the streets. Some of them are there at no fault of their own, seriously. There are some there that ha are there because they have dabbled in things that have messed up their lives incredibly. And what they're really into is they ask them, how do you get your money? And they say, well, we sell our bodies. How do you get your money? We steal things. We take things. That's a bad deal. And so we need to be those who work hard and that we give an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. Why? So that we can help others. Some of you remember John Smith that was, uh, uh, came here and did a men's retreat for us. Anyway, John Smith was talking about a time when he's outside a restaurant and a guy came up to him and he asks for money. He's begging, he's penning, he's asking him for money. And John Smith reaches into his wallet and he pulls out a $20 bill. And he goes to give it to the guy, but he stops. And he says, listen, he goes, I'm not a stupid man. I'm not a stupid man. I don't know you, and you don't know me, but I'm going to give you this $20. And you can do what you want with it, okay? But I'm going to give you this $20, but you need to understand something. I'm not giving this to you because I'm a good man. Because I'm not. I have sinned in my life. I'm not a good man, but Jesus, whom I serve, is a good man. And he'd had me do this nice thing to you. So here's the $20. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about that we are good people. That we are God's children. That we are the children of the king. That we wear robes of righteousness and holiness and goodness and wholeness. And that makes us good to other people around us. And when we work hard, it does great things. Then he says in verses 29 through 32... 
he says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and uh, be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And so he is saying you need to put off corrupt talk. You need to put off corrupt talk and put on wholesome words. So generally when we think about unwholesome words or corrupt talk, we think about cussing, right? We think, we think about cursing. We think about profanity. We think about using words that have innuendos attached to them or are very suggestive, suggestive in, in nature. We use words that when we hear them, it makes our skin crawl. We, those are words that are negative kinds of of words. And Paul says, you need to put those out of your vocabulary. Before I became a Christian, I'm here to tell you, I had a vocabulary of cuss words. I've done many push-ups and run many miles because coaches would say, you got a filthy mouse. Why don't you hit the deck and do 25 push-ups? And then when that didn't fix it, he says, well, Richardson has a filthy mouth in here. And so he's going to do 25 push-ups. And so are you other 60 guys. So you all hit the deck and do push-ups because of his dirty mouth. Man, I tell you, they started putting pressure on me after that. No more F words, no more S words, no more of that stuff. My teacher said to me, Richard, do you know how much you cuss? I'm in the class, he said, do you know how much you cuss? Do you know how much you use those words? And then I became a Christian. And I thought, man, how am I going to get, I'm used to using these words. I don't even know I'm using them half the time. So I had to take the worst words, which was using God's name in vain. And so I, I got to stop using that word. Then I got to start using that word. And now I got to stop using that word. And now I don't use those words. I think them. The old man sometimes thinks them. Paul says, put those words out of your mouth because when people hear you talk and how you talk and what you say, they know whether you are walking in the light or whether you're not. They know whether you're an old man or whether you're a new man. They know that. But corrupt words are not just words in terms of profanity or curse words. You can use words that are devastating to people, that breaks people's hearts. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander and clamor and that which is of malice, put those things aside and put on hearts of kindness and tenderness and forgiveness, just as God forgave you in Christ. So you can use words where you tear people up, where you tear them down, where you break them down. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me is the biggest lie ever told. Words can destroy people's lives. So Paul says you need to put those things aside. You need to put those behind you. And so that's the lesson. That's the new self. That's the new self that Paul says. She was called Garbage Mary. This is a true story. People called her Garbage Mary. The media took up that and called her Garbage Mary. Her name is Kathleen Nelson Cauley. She is a woman that was found at the mall digging in trash, and the police arrested her. And when they began to look into her life, they looked into her car. She was a filthy mess. I mean, a filthy mess. And when they looked into her car and when they looked into her two-room apartment, they were filthy mess. Her neighbor said that Mary was always digging in garbage for food. 
that she would take back to her apartment. When they arrived at the apartment, they found old garbage food in her refrigerator, in her sink, in her oven. They found it in her bathtub. It was everywhere. It was a filthy, filthy, filthy mess. What they found out about this woman here was that she was really a millionaire. I was listening to what this says here. This is, she lives in Delray um, Beach, Florida. Okay. They found other things as well. They found mobile oil stock worth more than $400,000. They found documents indicating she owned oil fields in Kansas, stock certificates from prominent firms, a passbook from eight large bank accounts. They also discovered that Garbage Mary or Kathleen Cawley was a, a daughter of a well-to-do lawyer and bank person that was super wealthy and had died, and she was an heir of that wealth. She's a wealthy, she's a millionaireist. And she digs in garbage. And Leah lives in squalor. When she didn't have to. You say, well, the woman was just nuts. Well, there are a lot of people who are nuts in our world then. Because we have a lot of people who resurrect the old man and find themselves digging back in the garbage of sin. And that's what was happening to those Ephesians. They were garbage diggers. They had went back into this old life. Paul says, you need to strip that away. You need to know who you are. You're the child of a king. You wear the robes of a king. You're something. Claim your inheritance. Be who you are, who you were meant to be. You know who you are. And now act like it. Put off the old self and put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put on the new self. So how does a person do that? Initially, well, we're baptized into Christ. We read that in Romans, the 12th cha or 6th chapter. Paul reminds them of their death, their burial, and their resurrection. So... We are dead to sin and alive to Christ when we are baptized. Galatians 3 and verse 27 says, Who are the sons of faith? Those of us who have been baptized into Christ have clothed ourselves with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Clothed in God's righteousness and his holiness. Clean. That's who we are. So this morning, as you think about the old man and the new man, I really do hope that you're the new man. In fact, I see that in 